Hey, murder lovers, this is Fatina. And Kara. And Sierra. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. All right, everyone, so welcome back. Today I have my beautiful wife again, Kara. And our beautiful cousin Cece recording with us. You've heard them both be here before. Cece did an episode with us where she told us her spooky story about her mission trip to Mexico. That was a crazy one. That was a crazy Um, one. So we won't be doing spooky today, although it is scary as shit. (laughs) Um, Before I get started with this one, a little bit of a warning. This is not the kind of episode that you'll want playing out loud if uh, you have children anywhere in the vicinity. And and if you do, that's your prerogative. But I'm letting you know there's a lot of graphic stuff in this case. Um, There is involvement of cannibalism, children, babies, and animals. So this runs the gamut. Like there is everything, everything that you want in a serial killer, <laughs> quote unquote, want in a serial killer. It just, it just hits all, it hits all the marks. So it's the case of Richard Trenton Chase, aka the Sacramento Dracula or the Vampire Killer. Dun, dun, dun. I don't think I've ever heard this one. I know. Uh, when I heard this soul. too, I was just like, <laughs> I need to cover this. Uh. So I took a little bit of a deep dive on this, but it's um, it's a it's a riveting story. Um, but there really is a lot of graphic stuff, so just prepare yourself for it. Also, his name is Richard, aka Dick. So I apologize in advance if. Um, I use the word dick a lot, but you can it's call his name. Him little dick. Oh, I'm going to, because his dad is big dick. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's definitely little dick. Little oh, dick man. chase. Um, <laughs> little dick chase. Little dick chase. Yeah, I know. It's a little dick chase. <laughs> there are not, that's no such thing. There's no such thing as a little dick chase. Unless you're running away from it. <laughs> Stay away from me, um, little dick. <laughs> That will come into play, believe it or not. So, again, I just want to give everyone that heads up if um, there's going to be a lot of uh, graphic slash maybe offensive language, which there normally is some, but this one, it lays way for there to be a lot. So, be prepared. Okay. Thank you. Now, on to the story. (laughs) Disclosures aside. I think I might be staying the night. (laughs) Yeah, you are welcome to. Okay, so this is the story of Richard Trenton Chase, aka Dracula of Sacramento, or aka the Vampire Killer. This story, I'm gonna give it to you from from womb to tomb again. So <laughs> he was born on May 23rd, 1950. His parents were typical. 50s, 60s parents, a lot of documentaries and podcasts cover it, and and they say that his home life was very typical for the time, where, you know, spanking happened, Um, people had a little bit of a dysfunctional type family, a lot of arguing, a lot of, um, not so much abusive, like physical abuse, um, but just a lot of yelling in the house, and that's just kind of the environment that he grew up in. So, 
I, you know, I usually cover what happens in the early life of people or these killers or cases, just because I think it's important to know the background. But in this case, we'll circle around and we'll see, and we'll we'll probably talk about, you know, is this something that was nature or nurture? What led him to be who he was and what led him to do what he did? So from a very early age, he showed signs of social ineptitude. He would wet his bed till later than a normal bedwetting age would be. So he bet, he wet his bed till around the age of 10. But then along with that, he also showed other signs that we know now are trademark right on the nose to someone that would grow up to have very a very violent nature. He also hurt animals a lot growing up. And this is, I'm just at age 10 right now. Did he start fires? And yes, he started fires. Uh Did he hit his head? I don't know. (laughs) Not that we know of. But we will talk about his head. So just those three things, those are the things that I usually look at, uh, you know, psychologists look at as the triad of what would a lot of, serial killers have in common a lot of these things come up that is yeah the triad mm-hmm. of a psycho socio exactly so all the paths they all the paths <laughs> he was down not the wrong the, path not the good one not, not the, the good, good path so as a teenager um he kind of out you know he he stopped wetting the bed and he stopped making fires as far as we know at this point but he as a teenager started doing drugs and drinking alcohol a lot at this point it was a lot of weed and a lot of lsd so he's growing up in this mid-60s type of thing teenager age so lsd he's in california sorry i think i failed to mention that Mm. he's in california so this is you know hippie age hippie yeah so in high school everything seemed normal his grades started slipping a little bit he was a little bit of an odd kid but he had some friends he had his first girlfriend at the age of 15 they were together for a bit until his girlfriend broke up with him because he couldn't perform sexually he could not get an erection or he could not hold one so a combination of those things. Either way, he had erectile, erectile dysfunction at a very early age, at an age where it would be very easy for a young boy mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Um, to get an erection. So his first girlfriend rejected him. And of course, he's in high school. Rumors started flying. Other kids started finding out. And they, he started to get teased about this. I'm sure other boys teased him. Little dick couldn't get it up, you know? <laughs> Uh, his mom and his dad, um, as he's, you know, becoming a teenager, they started having more trouble at the house, more fights, more arguing. The mom, she thought at one point that her husband was poisoning her. Her mom was being seen by a psychiatrist. In 1963, they lost her house. The parents um, decided to get a divorce. And when he turned 18, he finally went to the doctor for his his for his ED for his erectile dysfunctions mind you though somewhere along the line I'm sure he was taught at some point in high school like sex ed that what gives you an erection is blood flow Mm -hmm. right so at some point he starts thinking obviously I don't have enough blood flow 
keep that in mind. He goes to a small college. He's not doing so well in there. He is trying to assimilate and have friends and whatnot. He goes to a party and he fondles a girl. Oh. Or he... Inna- or? No. He oh. inappropriately <laughs> touches a girl. Other boys in the, in the house party kick him out. They're like, all right, dude, you gotta get the fuck out. Right? And as they're trying to scuffle him away, he drops a gun. Oh, yikes. A little small twenty two. And then, so he leaves begrudgingly, but he really wants to go back. Did he grab his gun? Yeah, he grabbed his gun. And <laughs> then he came back. Oh. So then the cops got called, and, you know, they, they escorted him out. There was no other issue at this point. At this point, he was living with some roommates. They thought he was odd. Eventually, they kicked him out. He went to live back with his mom. He has a lot of rejection, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Lots of rejection. Coming left and right. Yeah. Family, friends, girls. So he he's having all these issues. I don't know that his mom recognizes all the signs of him being um, mentally unstable just because she is herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1975, this is where he starts thinking... I don't have enough my, enough blood in my body. That's why I can't get an erection. His he was living in an apartment. His dad was helping him pay for it. I think it was like fifty bucks a month at this point. His roommates thought he was really weird, to the point where they moved out and had some other friends sublease from them because the girl that was living there she was like, I can't live with this weirdo anymore. He smelled really bad. He had really bad, um, just bo. He didn't take care of himself. He had like long shaggy hair, but again, he didn't shower, so he was always smelly. Mm-hmm. But eventually, he got his own place, and his dad would go visit him every once in a while, and his dad noticed that he had rabbits in the house. And the dad's like, what are you doing with the rabbits? Yeah. He just told his dad he was eating them. (laughs) Which his dad thought not much of it. Because if you think about it, people do eat rabbits. You know, it's not your everyday chicken, but people do eat rabbit. So it's not too far-fetched. Like as a family in the countryside, not as a young... In Sacramento. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, living around his house. Were they like in cages? I I think they were in cages. Um, but he would normally buy them from, like, your farm stores and whatever. Um, he would buy a lot of them, though. So one day, his dad came to find him ill at his house and took him into the hospital to get checked out. Turns out that he'd been injecting himself with the rabbit's blood. <gasps> And eating the rabbits raw. So the doctor, obviously at this point, he's like, okay, this is not so much a physical illness this looks more like a mental illness right so he uh, his excuse for the to the doctor on why he was ill he's like it's not me injecting myself with the rabbit's blood it's that one of the rabbits ate battery acid and it was the battery acid in the rabbit that made me sick no it was the energizer bunny (laughs) (laughs) so at this point he's thinking I'm going to inject myself with rabbit's blood because I am missing blood. So he was just order. like, no, was he so, like injecting it with like a syringe into yeah. his blood veins? Yep. No. Yeah. 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 He was full on injecting himself with rabbit's blood. And at this point, that's when the doctor's like, okay, he diagnosed him schizophrenic at this point. Yeah. Um, he, like I said, he did have a gun 
the neighbors of the apartment that he was living in a couple times. They heard some gunshots go off, and he later goes on to explain he's shooting the voices. Oh, oh my God. He would often just walk on the streets of Sacramento, look jingling doors. To see if they were unlocked. To see if they were unlocked or not. It was his belief that if a door was locked, he was not welcome in the house. But if the door's unlocked, he's being welcomed into the house. Like a vampire. I'm glad I double locked my door. Because he has vampire etiquette. So (laughs) he he has to be welcomed into the house. You know, just vampire or Dracula lore says that Mm -hmm. a vampire has to be invited into your house in order to cross the threshold. Mm -hmm. So in his head, he's thinking, if a door's unlocked, that means the homeowner wants me in their house. Yikes. Yeah. So this is really weird. So after this visit to to the doctor because of the rabbit's blood, he started having hypochondriac thoughts about his physical health. He started thinking that his his stomach was turned upside down, that his skull was shape-shifting, and that he had no pulmonary artery. He thought his skull was shifting to the point where he shaved his head because he was doing that so he could see it move. So he eventually was involuntarily admitted into a mental institution. He was there for about a year. But even while he was there, he started being very nonverbal. He didn't want to talk to anyone that was there. He didn't want to attend the group meetings as much as, you know, he was told that he needed to in order to recover or to get help. He would often... This happened a couple times where people in the institution or just uh, fellow patients would find him walking down the halls just covered in blood. Or one time, one of the people there found him in the bushes outside, but still on the grounds of the hospital with a dead bird at, you know, at his feet full of feathers, just looking like a feral cat that had just gotten killed. And they even found a dead bird in his garbage pail in, in his room once. So he was obviously not, not well. Getting, not no. well, but he had this moment of realization, just like a lot of socio- sociopaths do, that they have to start blending into society in order to like get some type of, you know, get their way kind yeah. of thing. So towards the second half of his time there, although he did have privileges like leave the campus or whatever, but... He started attending the group meetings more, although he wasn't participating as much. He was doing it to appease the doctors that were giving him these orders in order to release him, right? So by the end of it, though, believe it or not, the institution wrote on his release papers that he was no longer a threat to society and let him go. So once again, the mental health system unfortunately failed him because had they actually... I don't think at this point, though, they knew exactly how to help someone with mental issues. Yeah. But they, they unfortunately, didn't catch him, didn't catch his ruse of I'm okay. Yeah. So after being released from the mental institution, he's on his medication. He's on his medication regularly. He starts behaving a little um, more what, you know, normal society standards would say, which is get an apartment, get a job, etc. He couldn't hold down a job, though, because of his issues with drug abuse. So he would normally have really bad attendance or he just, you know, wouldn't be a reliable employee. Also, the medication that he was on almost 
told him. His mom didn't like that because she didn't recognize her son anymore. Some of the doctors thought at some point that his delusions were LSD induced mm -hmm. and not so much a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. So his mom started weaning him off the medication unbeknownst to his doctors and whatnot. So Great. he started going back to his normal self, not taking care of himself, not, um, you know, being part of society or interacting with any people. At one point, we kind of jump over to the end of, towards the end of um, 1977. In August of 1977, this is when in his adult life, he really escalates from you know, just being an, an odd fellow or just someone with, uh, you know, rabbit's blood in them. Um, there was these officers driving by in, in uh, an empty field one day and they saw a vehicle that seemed to be stuck in sand. Of course, they stopped and they wanted to see, hey, how we can, how can we help? You know, who is this person, et cetera, et cetera. And they noticed in the vehicle, there was a lot of blood and there was a bucket full of blood uh. and a bucket with what seemed to be a liver. But there was no human person around. So the cop got out his binoculars and he started looking at the nearby field. And there's just some, you know, mounds and, and, and small mountains nearby. And on top of one of these mounds, they see what seems to be a naked man covered in blood. Uh, he recalls that as soon as he saw them, he tried to take off. He tried to just start running the other way, but eventually they caught up to him. They brought him in, and he tried explaining to the police that it was his own blood and that it was seeping out of him. It wasn't. It was dog's blood. Dog? Yeah. Yeah. So apparently at this point, he had been purchasing a lot of dogs, slitting their throats, hanging them, drinking their blood, and eating their meat raw. It had been, I, we believe at this point, it was the family dog. So because there was no human death, the cops just let him go. They filed a report, but let him go. He, um... Isn't that like animal abuse at least? I know, but yeah. I don't know what the rules were in the 70s. Peter wasn't alive yet. And then just what, um... Yeah, I don't know what the animal abuse laws were in California at this point. But they they just made a report and they let him go. They didn't do much more of it. In his mind, he's kind of getting away with stuff at yeah. this point. He's mm -hmm. getting away with stuff. I mean... With everything. With yeah. everything. Yeah. And he, he can run around with blood all over him. Nothing naked. happens. And, and naked. And, yeah, and nothing is happening to him. So uh, we know about you know now about him purchasing dogs um, from local breeders, etc. So that was August of 1977. So we're gonna fast forward to December 29th, 1977. He was mad at his mom because she apparently either didn't want him or didn't invite him. I don't know the exact details, but he was mad at his mom because he wasn't able to join the Christmas festivities that year. This is where he escalated to his first kill. Uh-oh. He was 
driving around town. And mind you, all of this happens within a one mile radius of his apartment. So he doesn't go very far. So he's driving around town. He has his 22. And he's just looking to kill someone. There's no thought process into who, what, how. He just knows he wants to he wants to kill. So what happens? He's driving around and Ambrose Griffin and his wife are loading up groceries into the into the house from the car. And they both take in a load of groceries. She stays in the kitchen, putting them away in the counter. He comes back out to the car to get another load of groceries, so the last load. And as he's walking out, he's shot twice. I believe a family member was coming to the door to hold the door open for him again when they saw him on the ground and then his wife ran out. And if you know anything about guns, 22s are really small caliber and don't leave like a big gaping wound or exit wound or whatever. Um, but there wasn't much blood. So his wife at that point, her initial thought was he had a heart attack. Because he's just she, he's just on the ground. So they call the cops. Um, even the paramedics on the first sight didn't even know that he had been shot. Like they didn't even hear the gunshots or anything? <clears throat> no, because they're, they're small, really small calibers. Mm. And they were inside the house. And I mean, even if they heard pops, I don't know that I would think anything of it. But um, it wasn't until the paramedics were en route to the hospital that they realized there were gunshot wounds and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. So Ambrose Griffin, though, um, he was 51 years old. It seemed so random to the police at this point. They had no suspects. They had no idea why and who, why would he have been targeted? They started digging into Griff, uh, you know, Mr. Griffin a little bit more, but they couldn't find anything. And it wasn't until the news station showed up, uh, I believe two days later to do a, you know, to do a, a, a spot on, on this, uh, on this murder that they found the shell casings on the street, about 80 feet away from where he had actually been shot. Obviously, because this is a drive-by, the cops are thinking that from him shooting, the casing flew up maybe on top of the roof and fell off down the street. One of those casings was flattened by, you know, it being ran over. The other one was completely um, still intact. But at this point, they still had no leads mm -hmm. because they have no reason why this random attack happened. That was December 29th, 77. Um, he had another small incident in January 11th of 1978 where he asked his neighbor uh, for a cigarette. And I guess maybe she didn't want to give it to him or after he gave her one, she, he wanted more. So he ended up attacking her to get the full pack from her. Oh, oh my gosh. This was only a week and a half later. Yeah. And then he, she was alive though, you know, he didn't kill her. Um, but these same neighbors, now we know, they told the cops that they would often see him taking in small animals into the house and never see the animals come back out. But they did notice that animals were being taken into the house. And I'm assuming that's like small dogs or rabbits. Timeline-wise, we're jumping to 12 days from January 11th to January 23rd of 1978. Um, on this particular day, he goes to a local grocery store and he's wearing, it's, 
it's January. It's not that cold in Sacramento at this point. He's wearing a very bright, distinctive orange parka. Stands out like a sore thumb. Plus, he's smelly. He's disheveled. He is scrawny looking. He He's going to stand out. But orange parka helps, right? It's a highlighter. So he's in the store and then he runs into this woman. Her name is Nancy, who he remembers going to high school with. And he's just so awkward. Instead of like, oh, hey, Nancy, uh, you know, nice seeing you. How have you been, you know, since high school, whatever, whatever. He goes up to her and he's like, aren't you the girl who was in the motorcycle with Kurt when he died? Oh, wow. And that was Nancy's boyfriend in high school. Oof. Creeped her the fuck out, right? Yeah. Because she's like, at first, I didn't even recognize this guy. He doesn't look like what he looked like in high school. And then, I mean, for all intents and purposes, fucking strangers coming up to me and asking me about this horrific freaking yeah. thing in my life before she checked out she's like he i was like yeah well who are you and he just int introduced himself as rick so he she goes on about her day weirded out about it but nothing else happened off of that so from there here's my thinking it was another rejection so from there mm -hmm. he felt rejected again another just bad social interaction that he had so it might have like boiled his blood no pun intended. But his rabbit's blood. His rabbit's blood. And he is walking around. He doesn't have a vehicle at this point. And he sees someone taking out their garbage. Her name is Teresa Wallen. I think he snuck, kind of snuck around her. And he enters through her unlocked front door. So when she is coming in, he shot her three times. The first shot, it shows defensive wounds because it went through her hand and it kind of hit her head a little bit, but that wasn't the shot that killed her. The second shot hit her jaw and the third shot hit her head. Um, he, he surprised the hell out of her because she was just taking out her garbage and coming back in. So this is where it gets graphic. He dragged her body from the front door area to one of the back rooms. He raped the corpse while stabbing her with one of her own kitchen knives. He was stabbing her so bad it was going from front all the way through the back. Cut her stomach, moved around all of her organs. He cut the pancreas in half and cut off a nipple and drink her blood the fuck what is wrong with him he did he put it in a bottle like what the fuck is he, he grabbed a yogurt cup oh. and was like scooping out drinking blood <sighs> mind you he was wearing gloves through all this and a lot of people a lot of you know that have covered this um i think some people mistake it for him being thoughtful and methodical and not wanting to live, leave evidence or leave any kind of trace that he was there. The way I've seen it, the way that I've read some things, it makes more sense that, you know, he's been in and out of hospitals. 
He's seen procedures done. He's, you know, he's seen a lot of blood in his day. I think he's putting on gloves to not dirty the blood. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, he's mm-hmm. doing like a medical procedure. Mate, that's probably how he sees it. Yeah, like a psychopath. So he, he's, I think he's wearing gloves more for that sanitary portion, more so than the trying to get away with murders scenario. She was also pregnant at this time. Oh. And so that baby didn't survive. But so that one was a double murder. Yeah. Yeah. Before he left, he grabbed dog excrement from the yard and put it in her mouth. What? Yeah. Oh. Of course, they looked the husband right away because at this point they had no idea it was Richard Chase again. Um, they 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 quickly ruled out the husband. I mean, he wasn't there. The time of death wasn't right. They you know everything that they found out showed that they had a, a happy marriage. So they quickly ruled out the husband, and then the detectives that showed up to the scene, in their own words, they were still new to the field. They had only been detectives for four or five months at this point. Um, so. This was kind of like their landmark case, and to be walking into something this gruesome so early, they were determined to not let their what how do inexperience. I say, their, you know what might seem like inexperience. Um, like they wanted to make sure that they did right by everyone in this case, so they started. The lieutenant on this um, was assigned was Ray Biondi, and. Serial profiling was not so much a thing at this point that was accepted or used by everyone, but he had just attended a couple months back a briefing from the FBI that came to the police department was talking to them about profiling, and he quickly started building a profile like what they would look like, what kind of job they would have, or no job. At this point, he thought, this person might not have a job because these killings are ha- are happening like midday time so they were starting to put them together yes because they were all so they were close. so close to each okay. other that happened on the 23rd so the next day he went he broke into the house of a person that he had bought a dog from before before um he stole their dog and um it was a labrador and killed it drank his blood the very next day from the Teresa Walling murder. And he has, like, gone off the deep end. Oh, yeah. And this all happened so quickly. I wonder So, so quickly. Um, So, yeah, this all happens very, very quickly. So, Teresa Walling was on the 23rd. The dog, another dog was on the 24th. And then on January 25th, he does another just random act of violence um, where he broke into someone's house this was through a back window, though, so it kind of off of his pattern of whether the door's unlocked or not, because... Bad vampire. <laughs> so the thing is, though, he's not showing a lot of patterns. He he breaks into someone's house. He, he, you know, ruffles through everything. He starts robbing it or taking things. He peed in a drawer, and then he defecated in a kid's room. As he was doing that or still walking around the house, the owners of the house walked in on him doing this and they attacked him, rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he managed to escape. So that was January 25th. So it is, we're not even a month from his first kill. No, mm-hmm. not even. We are 
26 days from his first kill from Ambrose Griffin, yeah. from the guy on his driveway. Yep. And then on January 27th, so two days after this B&E... He must not have been, like, eating anything else either, you know? Like, I wonder, did he... I don't know. You wouldn't go from, like, doing that to, like, making yourself a sandwich. Maybe. Okay, so on January 27th, 1978, this was at the house of Evelyn Merrith. That's M-I-R-O-T-H. I think it's Merrith. Um, she was a 38-year-old woman. Um, she was at her house with her six-year-old Jason Merrith and her husband... Dan, they had a neighbor that come over uh, around 8.30 that morning and said, hey, Evelyn, is it, you know, can your kid come with us with my kids? We'll take him up to the mountain. Um, and then Evelyn said, yeah, give me, um, give me some time. Let me go get him some snowshoes. So this was around 8.30, but she was going to let her kid go on a, you know, small day trip with the neighbors. Mm -hmm. So Evelyn stays at home and her husband takes off at around 9.00. To go get the snowshoes for the kid. He takes the kid with him. He takes Jason with him. Um, at this time, she's also babysitting her nephew, David, who was a 22-month-old, so a year and 10 months, for those that don't <laughs> like to say 22-month-old. Um, but he's a kid. He's a baby. Um, so she's taking care of her nephew. She stays at home with the nephew, and her husband and her 6-year-old kid go off to the store around 9 he, I, I'm assuming he inadvertently leaves the garage door open and Dick sees an opportunity. He's walking around aimlessly, but he sees this garage door open. It's open and probably in his head he's saying, they're welcoming me in. The dad takes a little bit longer than expected, but um, Dick comes into the house through the open garage door. And as soon as he walks in, he shoots Evelyn. Shortly after the husband and the kid come home, he shoots the husband as soon as he comes into the house, gunshot to the head. And then he shot little six-year-old Jason twice in the head. He then proceeds to mutilate Evelyn's body he, unlike, um, unlike Teresa, he slashed her throat and he removed an eye. He sodomized her. And as he's doing this, the neighbor who was going to take the kid off to the trip sends her six-year-old Tracy over to the house to check in because she's like, hey... We're leaving. It's 1030 now. Why aren't you guys, are you guys ready? Luckily, she knocks, but that scares him. And he leaves. Did he leave the baby alone? No. Oh. So, eventually, the neighbors come over. So, the six-year-old that came over to knock the door, um, no answer. So, she went back home. The mom eventually came back over. They called the cops, and the cops walked into this gruesome scene. He and the 22-month-old, David, is nowhere to be found. So at this point, the cops, like I said, were trying to do their damnness to try and, like, 
make sure they get this person because mm-hmm. at this point this neighborhood this whole community is in like utter panic yeah i can't imagine because they're so random and it includes you know an elderly man an elderly man a woman who is pregnant or a woman that was in her house alone just a taking out the garbage. A mother, a father. Exactly. A baby is A triple missing. murder and a baby is missing. So just panic. People go out. They start buying guns. You know, they're carrying up because I would too. Yeah. But they start canvassing. They start knocking on doors. They're trying, you know, trying to get an idea of who might have done this. Of course, this family had no enemies or anything of the sort. And... At this point, all that they could find were neighbors saying, you know, obviously we don't know who did this, but there was, you know, this sketchy individual walking around, kind of scrawny, orange parka, um, walking around the neighbor neighborhood, and sometimes he would just, like, stop in the middle of the driveways, facing towards a house, and would just kind of fucking stare I mean, that's creepy, yeah. but obviously if someone's standing there in an orange park in a house that doesn't belong, people are going to start noticing. Mm-hmm. So they start putting together a sketch of like what this person might look like. Again, this is just a person of interest because they don't know that this is the person. Mm-hmm. They, no one saw him like coming in or out of that house, but it was enough to have neighbors take notice mm-hmm. and for the cops to be like, okay, we should look into this. Eventually, they, you know, they they put a sketch out on the newspaper and on the TV, and because they're in the area, Nancy, the woman that he had seen at the grocery store from high school, the one that he had asked the weird question. I know that bitch. Yeah, because he was in his orange park at then. Exactly. So he, so she remembered, you know, she hadn't like thought about that interaction too much at that point but when this was in the paper and the sketch was out there she was like um was that rick i think i just saw him and i'm pretty sure he might have had like dried blood on his hands she saw him before but as we know he liked to walk around unbathed and with probably dry blood everywhere on him but so she calls the cops Thank God. And she says, hey, this might be nothing, but I had this interaction with this guy right down the street Mm -hmm. from the day that Teresa Wallen was murdered. Mm -hmm. So the cops start looking into him. They go to his first known address. He He no longer lives there. They talk to the the landlord. He doesn't have a forwarding address. They start pulling records and just information on this guy. And eventually, they find what would be his new address, where he's last living at. And so the cops think this is him. You know, they pull up his last mugshots, and they show him to Nancy. And she's like, yep, that's him. Talk to neighbors. Yep, that's the guy we keep seeing. You know, we saw for... So, at this point, the cops knew that he was in the area because he was walking everywhere. He wasn't driving around everywhere. And so, they go to the house where he... Or the apartment where he was living. He doesn't answer the door. But they knew this might happen because he's such a recluse. So, they know that the apartment next to him is empty. So, they kind of set up camp there. And they kind of 
do this thing on purpose where they're like stomping and just like making their presence known that they're there. They they heard sounds in the room, so they knew that there was someone there, that there was some movement happening. And at this point, they're looking for this baby that's missing too. So they're thinking, you know, he might have a hostage in there for all we know. The cop said in one of the documentaries that he was ready to shoot him in the head because he's like, I'm going to show him the same mercy that he showed these other people. Plus, if he has a kid and he has him in danger, I'm prepared. Yeah. I'm mentally prepared to do that. Um, but he wasn't answering. So they called their supervisor and they were, you know, saying, hey, here's where we're at. We don't know what to do. What do you think our next step should be? What do you recommend? As they're doing this, though, there's kind of a lull in their stomping around and they're, you know, making their presence known. So this is when Dick thinks they've left. So Dick comes out of the house, comes out of his apartment with a box in hand that's like full of blood. And the detectives, they have a scuffle and they arrest him. Um, he was struggling and they did have to point a gun to his head. And the cop, that uh, the detective that arrested him was like, I put the gun to his temple and I told him to like stop struggling while I'll shoot him like he shot the other people. But then I realized that's what, make, that's what makes us different. Even though my shot would have been justified, I wanted justice for the people. Yeah. I didn't want to just kill him. Mm -hmm. Plus the kid was nowhere in sight, like immediately in sight. Yeah. So they take him in and then they go and... To their into his apartment, like wall to wall blood everywhere, carpets, countertops, I know, it smelled so everything. They said the mm -hmm. smell was horrible. The smell yeah. was terrible. I can imagine. There was jars with what seemed to be organs or body parts, and there was also a blender on the countertop. That had organs in it and body parts. Yeah, they walk into this, like, unbelievable apartment that's just full of... He wasn't even trying to hide it. No. He had and that's why I think the glove thing yeah. is not him trying to hide anything. No. I think it's just a sanitary thing. So then they, they take him in and they start talking to him and, you know, they... They put on the white glove service because, you know, just like any interrogation, you don't want to start with, you know, being too hard on someone because they'll just clam up. Um, but they also had to put some pressure on him because... The baby. The baby. The baby's still yeah, missing. Yeah, they still haven't found the baby. You know, they're trying to figure out if he if he's still alive or somewhere in his apartment or did he, did he stash him somewhere else? You know, where is this kid? So he doesn't admit to any of the murders of the humans. He admits to killing dogs because he knows that he won't get in trouble. He would get in trouble for saying he killed humans. This is the part where I'm thinking and everyone else thinks too that he knows the difference between right and wrong. He he's fit for trial. That's what it gets to, right? Mm -hmm. So he knows the difference of what he's doing. He knows that killing is wrong, killing humans is wrong, well, killing animals is wrong too, but um he doesn't tell them the whereabouts of the baby. And they eventually charge him for five murders because they don't know about the baby's 
well, how, well where are the babies at again? I can't prove like, it. The baby's just gone. So, it w- he was charged with uh, five murders, and then he, um, while he's in pres or in jail right now, waiting for a trial and whatnot, it was until two months later that a groundskeeper at a church found a box by the dumpsters with a decomposed baby body that had been decapitated. Yeah. So, it was, although it was decapitated and mutilated, he was all in the box. So, they didn't have to, like, go looking for... You know, different locations for him. He was all in one location. So, eventually, they, you know, they they put him on trial they, for six counts of murder at this point. And he goes on the stand and he acknowledges that it's wrong. But he said mm-hmm. that he needed to do it. That's why he did it. For his own, Survival. what he thought. His, yeah, for his own health. Um, they found him fit for trial, so they moved ahead with it because his defense, of course, tried to bring the insanity plea and, mm-hmm. you know, do all these things. Four different doctors. Was it death penalty case? Yes, no, it, it was. was a death penalty case. So yeah. he, um, they had four different doctors attest to his sanity and that he knew the difference between right and wrong. And oh, just was... so they, they tried him as normal. They found him guilty in on May 8th of 1979 so this was within a year and four months from the last murders and he was sentenced to death when he was in prison because of the type of murders that he'd been he'd been proven guilty of everybody wanted to kill him everyone wanted to everyone wanted to hurt him yeah um but they also, a lot of inmates, instead of, like, physically hurting him, they were encouraging him to kill himself. Mm. So, we don't know if exactly that's what happened, but I'm sure California really drags out death penalties. So, he eventually was stockpiling his medication for his antidepressants, and he eventually overdosed on them on December 26, 1980. So he passed away. He was found in his cell. That's so frustrating. Very frustrating. Also, I'm surprised he was mentally fit to stand trial because there's no way you could be mentally fit and do all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess it's maybe more the right and wrong than being mentally... Yeah. I mean, he he was... Sane or He was deemed fit and he was... I mean, just the little things like you know, him admitting to the dogs, but not the humans, he knows that, you know, in the eyes of the law, yeah. in the eyes of society, that's not something right to do, that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be doing that. But yet he went ahead and did it multiple times senselessly. Um, and then on top of that, you know, was doing all kinds of other things to people after he murdered them. Yeah. But <sighs> so... This is interesting, right? I mean, I, I want to know what do you guys think if this is something that's nature or nurture. Because we know his mom had a, a right. past of mental illness um, or mental health issues. What did his mom think of all the stuff that 
Did so, you hear anything about it, like, during his trial or anything? Did she... I don't think so. I, I didn't read much into... I don't know if his mom ever testified, but, mm-hmm. um, I mean, leading up to it, or now she's said that, you know, yeah, he was a little weird as a kid. He sometimes would, you know, as a, as a teenager, as, like, you know, 12, 13-year-old, he would go into the kitchen and try to make food, and it wouldn't turn out right. And this was, like, middle of the night. Um, or he would burn something, and he would just leave the mess. So he was completely unaware. He, like, he was trying to do something um, to, like, help himself or, like, mm-hmm. you know, feed himself or whatever. But he wasn't aware or, like, conscious of, like, the mess that he was leaving behind, what he was doing. Um, and then he did other odd things, like he would crank up the heat in the house and then open the windows and then walk around the house naked and this was like as a like borderline puberty kind of age so it was just odd things that he Mm -hmm. did but other than that you know to her it was you know her child and she loved him and you know we know that she's the one that weaned him off the medication that was helping him. Yeah. yeah, no, she's a crazy cuckoo pants. I think so, it definitely has to be a combination, though. I think like, so too. Yeah, okay. nature obviously, and nurture. Obviously, she has issues, which you know, people have issues. Not you are know, those hereditary, hereditary? It depends on the type okay. of issue it yeah. is, because some of some mental issues are because like your body doesn't produce certain things mm. or doesn't metabolize things the or same doesn't way block or something doesn't block or doesn't yeah something yeah. doesn't fire right yeah. or um like my sister did genetic testing and she found out that we're like predispositioned to not produce the enzyme that helps counteract your fight or flight oh. so like that's probably why we have such bad anxiety because we get to that and then our body doesn't like oh. regulate it for us so i think some of it is hereditary but yeah. then i also think it has to do with how you're treated too right but that's not always like that though, right you know and then we know that from his early childhood he was growing up in a house where arguments were happening and you know he was being disciplined when he was you know getting older his dad too when he was being um for lack of a better term just un- an unsuccessful young adult um his dad was just like you know kick him on his butt and just get him try to get him back up on his feet because mental health was not mm-hmm. uh, something that was viewed as something that you can get help for back in that time so I don't know. I, I think you're right. It's a combination of things. It's both mm-hmm. nature, because, you know, probably hereditary, but But also, his mom didn't do that, so... Right. Well, his mom was a little cuckoo. I mean... Mm-hmm. She was she, cuckoo, but she wasn't drinking everybody's blood, from what we know. No. So maybe that made his mental illness worse, because his mom was crazy, too. So, like, he was predispositioned, and then she, like, pushed him over the edge. Maybe. So isn't that interesting? Because it... Evidence for both nature yeah. and nurture on this one. like, mm-hmm. And I feel like it had to be a perfect storm of all the rejection and stuff, yeah. too. That is the case of Richard Little Dick, Crunch and Chase. <laughs> Heavy. Yeah. yeah. So I know these are not your favorite, but... No, At least but... I wasn't eating lunch this time. When I listened to your first episode and you started talking about him eating the butt cheek, and I don't remember what I was eating for lunch, but I've never eaten it again. 
<laughs> so I've got a what the Florida story for you guys oh, today. Good. All right. So on today's what the Florida. So, <laughs> so stupid. I always I always bust out laughing when we read just the headlines on these. So it says his worst enemy. This is a story from 2018. It says man, 25, is arrested after he turned his dash cam into cops to prove his innocence in a car accident and showed him robbing a store earlier today. <laughs> so it says a Florida man ended up in jail after his dashboard camera showed police more than he intended. He was involved in a car accident on April 5th when he told the sheriff's deputy that he had been cut off by another vehicle and that he could prove it because he had a, a dashboard camera. And then he signed a consent waiver for them to search this camera. But when the Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputy reviewed the footage, they saw him burglarizing a beauty store earlier in the day. Authorities say the video showed Moran parking outside of Sally's Beauty Supply Store, taking a baseball bat from the trunk and using it to break the glass door of the store. Oh he then gosh. allegedly used the bat to try and break into the store safe. It's unclear if he was successful in that. <laughs> <laughs> unclear <laughs> he was arrested the next day on burglary charges so oh my gosh that's hilarious if you're gonna show the police your dash cam make oh sure you haven't God. recorded yourself committing other crimes <laughs> i mean why are you robbing us sally's though i know like they wouldn't even have that much money <laughs> what are you scott peterson you need some bleach <laughs> what is wrong with Oh, all right, everyone. So if you have any crazy Florida man stories, if you have had any run-ins with either true crimes, strangers, or if you have a spooky story to tell, like I said in the last one, I think I'm overdue for a spooky one. Yeah, We're halfway are. to October, so I would like to get a spooky one. Send that in. You can send us an email. The email is a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook using stranger danger colon a true crime podcast, or you can visit the group page, which is also where I'll be putting the pictures for this case for the little dick case, because he, um, there is pictures out on the internet that are very graphic that are not suitable for IG or for normal Facebook. So join the group and you can follow us on Instagram, which is at a stranger danger podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using at SD true crime pod. And remember, if you would like to be a Patreon and I would love you forever and ever and ever, you uh, can find us on patreon.com forward slash stranger danger podcast. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. <laughs>